Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Lorraine, I'm, I'm very excited. Something momentous happened this week. I think when you say you're very excited... <laughs> It's often the opposite of what I would consider yeah. very exciting. Yes. What is yes. it, Trish? Well, the Swifts are back. Who are they? Car- sort of cartoon characters. What are they? They're the birds that fly in oh, the sky. Actual birds. God. What are is they, it? Twitching? Is that what you're doing now? Well, I was in the shower and I could see out the top of the window and I could see it there floating around in the sky. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're back. Because do you know what they do? They winter in Africa. They winter in Africa. <laughs> And then, like the royals. Like the royals in uh, Kenya or wherever. Yeah. They winter in Africa and then they come back to Wandsworth in to May, Just in time for my birthday, my little birthday swifts. I like to think of them as. I don't think that's very exciting. <laughs> But how can you not like swifts, Lorraine? Well, how do you know they're swifts even? <laughs> a lot of knowledge to kind of you know a couple of episodes of spring watch and you're laughing oh you know God. I wouldn't even want that knowledge in my head because I'd be out somewhere exciting and, and someone mm. would, would mention birds and I'd know about them and then they'd look at me and they'd say well she's old isn't she <laughs> welcome to my world hello. hello welcome to postcards from midlife I'm Lorraine Candy I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Now, Trish, I'm hoping for a bit of calm in this week's episode um, because it's been a really busy couple of weeks. The phone's been ringing off the hook. Emails have been pinging in. Social media has been, well, it's been endless, our social media, hasn't it? Mm, it really has. Well, the thing is, Lorraine, you are very popular, obviously. This is and true. we are moments away <laughs> from your book about parenting oh. teenage girls, yes. your daughters being published. Very it's very exciting. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be interviewing you at the Primrose Hill literary festival on the 9th of june and what's really great about this is it's an actual real world in the flesh real life event not any of this zoom nonsense isn't it well i am bracing myself for you <laughs> interviewing me because you are the parkinson of podcasters sometimes or no. possibly that yes mm. um, i'm quite excited well if anyone wants to come along and see a couple of nitwits in action then we'd love to have you there and um, we're going to be talking all things teenage and sharing our midlife advice too you'll find all the information for booking tickets on our usual social media channels our postcards from midlife social media channels that'll be on our private facebook group and actually 
good news about the private Facebook mm. group, Trish. We've had a surge of new members in the last we few have. weeks, haven't we? Well, a surge indeed. I think it's probably connected to the fact there's been such a huge amount of coverage of menopause in the press yeah. and all, on social media, hasn't there? Well, this is about time, isn't it? Mm. There's a shocking scandal. It's been uncovered. Everybody knows about it, thanks to that Channel 4 documentary. We've been talking about it for two years now mm. on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of women are finding out about our brilliant postcards community through that and we're very pleased to welcome all of you newbies to our midlife gang so if you are just discovering these podcasts we hope you'll have a good old rummage through our back catalogue on your podcast provider and you'll be able to hear some amazing women that we've spoken to over the last sort of 18 months two years Yes, if you're new to us, we've covered many big life and menopause issues with wonderful spirited women like Catla Moran, Kate Garraway, Marion Keyes, Bobby Brown, Trini Woodall, Kate Moss, the writer, Dr. Louise Newsom, Professor Michael Baum, who's a cancer specialist, Tamsin Althwaite, Sadie Frost. It's a very long list. Gabby Roslin, mm. Gabby Logan. I mean, it's a roll call of brilliant women in their midlife years, plus many experts on health and well-being too. So please check out our back catalogue and do subscribe to the podcast. Right, and back to today's episode, we are going to be keeping things a little on the calm side, but no less thought-provoking or interesting, as our special guest is the renowned psychotherapist Julia Samuel. Julia has spent a lifetime promoting the power of hope and giving thousands of people the emotional tools to thrive after big life changes and losses, and she's going to be sharing her wisdom with us today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to meeting Julia. We've got all of that. And after our interview, we have How to Win at Midlife. And we're going to be sharing our fashion now in How to Win at Midlife because we've got tips on how to get out of your midlife style rut. But first up is, it's back again, Culture Club, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is our roundup. It's like our little mini book club, film club, TV club. The things that we're excited about watching, listening to and reading now. What's on your reading list then, Lorraine? Well, on my reading list is an author called Deborah Levy, who I love, and I'm sure many of you will have read her books. She well, she became a success like many of these big writers now in her 50s. And she's just she just writes in a really brilliant way about being a woman, about motherhood and what it is to live in a family and to kind of balance all of that. She's been Booker Prize nominated as well. Hot Milk is one of my favourite novels ever. Anyway, her new book is called Real Estate and it's part three of what she calls her living autobiography. So instead of looking back on life and writing it, she's written two episodes of her life in the storm of her life as she calls Mm. it sort of almost live as it was happening and she's about to turn 60 and part three is really real estate is really about emptiness syndrome how we kind of rebuild ourselves after midlife what we think about motherhood who are we and what do we own that's why it's called real estate Mm. what do we own as a woman what do we claim what do we discard what do we bequeath what do we rent out what do we charge for it's a really interesting take now the first two books were called um things i don't want to know which is her early life and then the cost of living so she divorced as well in her 50s and i think it's just it's a really brilliant Mm. slightly uncomfortable take Mm. on life and all the questions we should ask and you know I like to put myself in a slightly uncomfortable place when I read a book. Uncomfortable place yeah exactly it sounds brute you know what I haven't read any of those so those are going to be the three have to read them in order obviously I'm going to read all of those this summer so thank you for that little tip. What have you got what have you been reading while you've been watching the Swifts? (laughs) 
<laughs> fluttering by. Well, this one actually came out last autumn, um, but I've only just discovered it. It's by Matt Haig, who you yeah. will know, Lorraine. He writes novels and books about mental health, and he his bestseller, Reasons to Stay Alive, was actually written after he contemplated suicide, but he's very kind of thoughtful and mindful. He's such a great writer. This is a novel, it's fiction, and it's a lovely story about a 30-something woman called Nora Seed. I love that Nora. name. Nora received. She's clever and talented, but she's she's just never made anything of her life. She's got all these talents and skills. And at this particular point, she hits rock bottom. She loses her really crappy job. And then her cat dies. And oh, she dear. finds herself in, I'm not going to tell you why she finds herself, you can probably guess, in the Midlight Library. And, and it's this kind of in-between life place where she can find out about all the different kinds of lives she would have led if she'd made different choices and decisions. Oh. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> and it starts off, she has to read the book of regrets, which is this book filled with all of her regrets in life. And then oh, she gets dear. to choose things and she jumps into the lives that, you know, if she had pursued her swimming and become an Olympic swimmer, if she had done this, if she had done well, that. we've been there. Yeah. <laughs> old olympics for me exactly so you know it's about kind of what could have happened in your life what's the best that can happen what's the worst that can happen what you what's your biggest regret trish go on tell me uh well mine's really boring it's like not doing french a level not learning to speak french i know is that is that what I'm well, going to be thinking when they're playing your, yes. your funeral music? My, oh yeah. my god, she's well, in the there regretting is, that French a, lack well, that, of a French A level. What I like to think of it through my many years of reading these self helpy books is that I just quite often just see my choices of positive choices. I don't regret my choices. I like yeah. my choices, and I see why they were good choices rather than why they were bad choices. You know, I don't have any regrets. You don't have no. you've got none. Well, that's brilliant. I don't really think that that's one really should. Good. You can't change it, so it no. shouldn't really exist as a word, should it? Regret no. No, that's true. But anyway, what I'm doing with this book is I'm not actually reading it. I'm listening to it. And you will never guess who is narrating this book. I didn't think people like this did this. Carrie Mulligan. Well, it could be Carrie Mulligan. A-list wow. stars narrating books. And I just, she's got such a brilliant voice. And I love listening to her voice, except there's one bit where she has to do a French accent, talking of French. Uh, she's not very good. Carrie's not very good at doing French she accent. She regrets not doing a French well, A-level I think as well. So, though, but she's very brilliant at everything else. So we'll leave it there. But talking of Carrie and films. I do have a film. Mm. It's a slightly left field choice. And I think mm. it might be kind of pertinent to, to me. And it's not, it's not a big blockbuster and it's not going to change your life. But it's, I think it's a really really lovely afternoon watch. I've only seen the trailer. I've read all about it and I'm desperate to see it. Um, it's called um, My New York Year. It, mm-hmm. in it, when it was released in the States, it was called My Salinger Year, but it stars Sigourney Weaver, who I oh, love because she was brilliant in Call mm. My Agent, if you remember. She has a good French accent, actually. Oh, good. Glad apparently. to hear that. And Margaret Qualley. Now, who's Margaret Qualley's daughter? I do daughter? know. She's Andy McDowell's daughter. I know. She, I know. She, That's great. Yeah, she, do, she looks really cute. She looks, there's so many flashes of Andy McDowell in her. Anyway, it's about the story of a young girl who lives in New York, goes and gets a job in a literary agency just to make money as she's writing her book. It's based on a true story. And it's a, uh, the agency, Sigourney, is actually J.D. Salinger's agent. So there's oh, all this myth and yeah, cult status yeah. around it. But it's set in the 90s. And what it did for me is, and all the fashion, it was such a nostalgic mm 
look at that period of time in the 90s in New York. And Sigourney is absolutely brilliant in oh. it. I mean, she's completely ageless and she's always really funny in it, kind of quietly funny in mm. everything she does. So I think it's a really lovely Sunday afternoon film. But if you want a family film, have you seen The Mitchells versus The Machines on Netflix? I have not seen that. What That's is a that? very good film. I don't like the sound of the title. That will put me off straight away. But what's oh, no, it about? It's very funny. Mm. It's very funny. It's about how being older is you're rubbish at technology and, oh. and they take their daughter off to college <laughs> okay. and on a car trip and oh. robots take over. It's oh. really funny. Oh, that's, that does sound quite nice. I'll, I'll let you, you have watching? that. Well, I haven't watched anything, but I'm thinking about going back to the cinema because we can now. And it's funny, isn't it? Because will people go back? Will we not? We're so used to not going. But there is a film. It was supposed to come out last year and then it obviously it was delayed with the old uh, pandemic. So I think it's coming into cinemas on June the 4th and it's a British film starring Joanna Scanlon. I don't know whether yeah. you know her. She's that fab 50-something Welsh actress and she's been in all of the great comedies like The Thick of It. She was in Bridget Jones' Baby, How to Build a Girl. I just absolutely love her. Uh, but this is very different. She plays a character called Mary Hussain who converted to Islam when she married and she'd been living this very quiet, kind of contented life in Dover until her Pakistani husband dies and she makes a startling discovery that basically all along he had another Pakistani family mm. in Calais and he was hop, hop over and back ah, from Dover. So life. it's a very sort of beautiful, meditative, thought-provoking one. I won't be watching it with Neil. He will not have talk patience talk. or anything. He'll talk all the way through. He'll, he'll just go, what is this rubbish? But I... <laughs> love I uh, just a little bit of a nice calm solitary moment I'm yes I think that's that. the same as um my new york year that's mm. the kind of feeling because we just want to go to the cinema to have a massive glass of wine don't we because f- food and drink doesn't count in the cinema like no, on an airplane it doesn't count, it doesn't count either, if does you rustle popcorn I will kill you you do know that yeah I'm, I know <laughs> <laughs> there are rules again with watching films with you, aren't there? Yeah, definitely. What, what has been on telly that uh, has caught your attention? Well, it's, it, by the time this podcast comes out, it, this will already be out, but I am so excited. It's coming out tomorrow, Lorraine. We can both watch it. It's Holston on Netflix. <gasps> oh, yes. <gasps> so glammy and exciting. That. It's by Ryan Murphy. He of the all those amazing shows like The Assassination of Gianni Versace. And it's Ewan McGregor playing... Holston, the fashion designer, full name Roy Holston Froick. Um, as we know he was that designer who was like all about the 70s studio 54 he made those beautiful slinky kind of minimalist dresses um that everybody went mad for and it's about his life his kind of relationships and i think he he died of aids didn't he in the 90s or 1990 and uh, i was reading up about it can't wait to watch it but his family aren't so pleased with the portrayal of him and they've uh said that i think his niece said that she appreciates ewan mcgregor's talents as an actor but it's impossible to duplicate the authentic grace, beauty, and sophistication of Holston. So she's basically saying you well, and it's quite a leap for you and McGregor. <laughs> yes. I've that? gone back in time a mm. little bit for mine, uh, not too far back. You remember the chef Anthony Bourdain? I do. New York chef. He, I, I didn't know this, and I'm sure everyone in the whole world knows this, but he had done a travel program called Parts Unknown. Mm. And it, I would call it searing. It's quite extraordinary. So he goes to places. So he went to Lagos. He goes to Borneo. And then he goes in the middle of Texas, Kenya. He goes to really far away, quite mm. difficult to get to Beirut, places where you need to get a thousand visas and have bodyguards um, and explores the journey, the people through yeah. the food. And it's okay. really 
I mean, the way he talks is so kind of, it's very addictive listening to him, Mm. but it's extraordinary to watch. And it gave me an insight into so many parts of the world because we can't go anywhere anyway (laughs) at the moment. And we might never go to these places. You might not choose to go to those places. No, exactly. I'd be curious about it though. It's Mm. kind of like when when you're young and you're a journalist and you want to go out and you want to travel the world and see all these kind of far away, really far away places. But he does it with real humour. The the people come across in an extraordinary way. Mm. And I, I was, I was completely, completely captivated by it. it just went by so quickly but Netflix um, and I think Amazon Prime it was originally made by CNN um, now have it all up there and there's something oh, like 140 right. episodes yeah. but it's really really good um, and I, I really recommend that for anyone who's just wants to broaden their yes. thoughts on something did it make you hungry no because they were eating the kind well you know the <laughs> list of things I can't eat is quite quite long and the list of things I could eat in Lagos was, was well, it's very very short, very short. yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. I'm not very adventurous with my food mm. as you know hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Now it's time to meet today's guest. Julia Samuel, MBE, has been a psychotherapist for 30 years. She is the author of two highly praised best-selling books, Grief Works, Stories of Life, Death and Surviving, and This Too Shall Pass, Stories of Change, Crisis and Hopeful Beginnings. She also hosts a new podcast called Living Loss. Julia, who is 61, is a mum of four, grandma to seven, and has been married 41 years. She has spent most of her career in the role of maternity and paediatric counsellor at St Mary's Hospital Paddington, a role she pioneered three decades ago. She is also a founder patron of the charity Child Bereavement UK. Julia is the youngest of five children. A member of the Guinness family, Julia's closest friend for many years was Princess Diana, and she is godmother to Prince William's eldest son, George. Always generous with her advice and knowledge, Julia has spent a lifetime promoting the power of hope and giving thousands of people the emotional tools to thrive after big changes. And today, she's going to help you, our lovely listeners, tackle one of the biggest transitions we face as women, midlife. Julia, welcome to Postcards from Midlife. Congratulations on your book, This Too Shall Pass. It's coming out in paperback and also on your new podcast, Living Loss, which has been great, actually. I've really enjoyed listening to that. So could you explain for our listeners what you mean by living loss? It's quite an emotive phrase. How do living losses affect us? 
So I see living losses as all the experiences in your life that feel the equivalent of death, but aren't actually death. And so the experience of them is like grief. So it could be the end of a relationship, like a divorce. It could be losing your job or leaving your job or even things you choose, like going from singledom to coupledom. Every change in our life, it's more difficult and complex if it happens to us beyond our control but is brings up losses of our previous selves and what comes with them is all the feelings of loss of confusion sadness anxiety fear that is the adaptive process we need to allow them come through us so that we can grow through that living loss rather than block and try and control it because when we do that we cause ourselves more problems And calling it living loss means we name it then, doesn't it? So we can take it seriously. Yes. And essentially it's about change, isn't it? And and transition. It is absolutely about change and transition. And I think it's there have been collective living losses in the last 18 months more than we've ever seen before. And so I think people are beginning to recognise that loss isn't just about when someone actually dies, it's about many other things in life. And that mm. we, as we grow through life, we change and we need to let versions of ourselves go as we embrace new versions of ourselves. And of course, midlife is a sort of particular nodal point of that. You're such a renowned therapist. You've been doing it for a long time. But tell us what brought you into this line of work and what maybe are some of the key things you've learned from listening to so many personal experiences? I think the only real skill I have as a therapist is I'm a really good listener. So I do look at your face, but I can't get inside your brain and know that basically you're a psychopath. (laughs) That's a very swift diagnosis of Patricia's personality there. See, I told you, Trish. I mean, the reason I came into it, I think, are many. And always, I think, if we look at the choices we make in our life, and particularly if you look at it from a lens as a therapist, it's our early development that sort of consciously and unconsciously influences us. And in my family, there were lots of very big, significant deaths that had happened before I was born, but were never talked about and never grieved. And I think it meant that I was always curious, looking to see what was really going on, because I couldn't really make sense of it. And so I became more interested in what people were feeling and thinking on the inside than what they were showing on the outside. Mm. Mm -hmm. But also I'm a twin. And if you look at twins in utero, they kind of press into each other. They suck each other's thumbs. They're Trish knees has and toes. Have you? Mm, yeah. So me yeah. and my twin brother, are, you know, if you look, the t- knees and toes are pressed into each other. And I don't know if it's true with your twins, but I think it wired me to seek intensity of relationship. So I think the two things came together. You've spoken to and helped possibly thousands of people over the 30 years. What were some of the things that maybe changed you from that experience? I mean, I think one of the things that has changed me is recognising that the things that matter to us most, the kind of life and death of people, the most significant in our life, we can influence, but we fundamentally don't have control. Mm -hmm. And that we can influence our relationships. But again, if somebody doesn't like us or thinks badly of us, to some extent, that isn't our business, it's their business. So trying to kind of wrench control over things that we don't have control, I think is a, an exhausting business that 
you know, I still do in minor ways, mm. but I think I have freed myself to enjoy the kind of freedom of the day and worry less about the future. Now, we're here, obviously, to talk about midlife. It's kind of broad brief. And in a moment, we're going to put you on the couch with some questions from listeners. But first, maybe we should talk about your midlife experience. And I was kind of looking at the timeline. So around 15 years ago, because you're 61 now, you would have had one of your four children at home. Your career in grief counselling was gaining traction, and you may have been going through perimenopause at the time talk us through what your experience of menopause and perimenopause has been so I mean I remember it incredibly well so I had a for lots of sort of gynecological reasons I had a hysterectomy at 45 I had my last child at 29 so it was well after as far as I was concerned my kind of fertile years I thought it might affect me, my sense of myself as a sort of fertile sexual being in the world but that didn't really affect me But I remember being on holiday and I woke up, this was was about 47, with unbelievable sweats. And then really, in a way I've never experienced before, brain-busting, storming anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't concentrate. And I felt like I wasn't walking on the ground. Everything frightened me. And my, my husband looked at me like I was this lunatic that he didn't really like or know and really didn't want much to do with pouring the sweat, constantly anxious, completely exhausted from not sleeping. So I jumped at HRT. And you found you were easily offered that because the narrative we hear a lot is women being told you need to take antidepressants not HRT well I didn't go to a GP I went to hormone specialists straight Mm. away I mean I think maybe one of the things as a therapist I knew more about this than a lot Mm. of people so I knew what was happening to me I knew I wasn't depressed I knew that this was hormonal but I think you're right. I think a lot of people don't understand what's happening to them and they're given completely the wrong fix. And that yeah. really just prolongs, you know, the distress that they're in. You talk about the kind of the feelings that you have, the emotions that you have. We know obviously there's up to 40 symptoms of menopause, some of them physical, but some of them are emotional too. And that kind of unexpected rage fear anxiety obviously it's hormones it's estrogen but from a therapist's point of view with those emotions is there something else happening there for us too i think our mind and our body are completely interconnected and so the feelings that we have affect our thoughts and the thoughts that we have affect our feelings so do you mean that you can make yourself ill with your thoughts yes when they go completely unfiltered You can start telling yourself stories about yourself and then that is the person you become. So if you're telling yourself, I'm a mad woman, I'm raging, then you become more so. It becomes sort of the shitty committee I call in your head that kind of completely (laughs) takes over. That's why something like therapy or talking to a friend or journaling really helps because you begin to see what you're actually saying to yourself and then you can begin to address it and kind of look at it from a distant perspective and or sort of third mm-hmm. perspective and see that really this isn't you, that there's something is, is going wrong. Anger is so hard to deal with as a new emotion as well. And anger, this kind of definition of anger is that it's an expression of fear. It's like, oh, you're hurting yeah. me. And whereas, you know, fear is you're going to get hurt. So stop hurting me. It's protective it's there it's evolutionarily wired to protect us from being hurt but when we turn it against ourselves 
it becomes like self-harm. Yeah. And that's a horrible loop and cycle that we mm-hmm. can get into. In your book, This Too Shall Pass, the one that's out now, you recount psychological journeys of the clients that you've worked with. So there's lots of themes covered. You must see quite a lot of women of our age, Generation X women. What is it they talk about and how do you help them? I think it very much links to what you're saying is that at that point in your life, your kind of purpose and meaning and focus has may well have been on work and family or just family and that you were your sexual kind of attractive self and then as you come into menopause you still remain attractive but you may not feel as attractive as you did so your sense of identity and your capacity to get attention and we need attention drops and the work I did with people that come through my door is to rather than fear who I am now is to examine who they are now and this new identities that they can create for themselves. Because at the heart of all our different identities, the need to be loved and to belong and to be part of our tribe. And when we're menopausal, we feel invisible and that we're by kind of being exiled from our tribe. The work of, of living loss is to kind of release who they were and engage with this new identity and find ways to support themselves Mm. and what they're interested in and what they want going forward. But the other big issue I often see with people in their their sort of mid to late 40s is that I think we often have a kind of clock in our head of where we should have been or what we expected our life to look Mm -hmm. like. Maybe people in their mid-40s didn't have the relationship or the job position or the children, and they felt like they sleptwalked through their 30s into their 40s, and then they woke up and all their opportunities are gone, and they face this kind of brick wall of a very dark, frightening future. And so it's working with them to facing that new future and how they may envisage it for themselves with hope and you you know hope is the alchemy that turns a life around is that a painful process for people it is painful unfortunately you have to be quite brave we need to have courage to face ourselves i have a kind of troubling relationship with this idea of happiness that we were looking for happiness i think happiness bubbles up unexpectedly in wonderful surprising joyous moments pain is the agent of change you know when everything's tootling long fine and we're happy pain doesn't come through us but pain is an emotional signal in our body telling us wake up something isn't right and the more you do to block that signal the more you get it stuck and entrenched in the place that you are and it may be your job it may be your relationship it may be a friendship it may be as a midlifer that the signals of discomfort the louder they get the more we need to listen to what they're actually telling us because they're there to protect us and to tell us to shift our lens and adapt the point of therapy for so many you know, people to kind of overcome things is talking to somebody, isn't it? But one of the issues that, that we're seeing quite a lot, and it's, it's not just midlife, it's broader as well across the UK, is this kind of feeling of loneliness. I think this can be a very lonely life stage for women because quite often maybe their friends have drifted away, their lives have got so busy, they're so focused on family job, just getting through, as you say, in their kind of 30s and 40s. And then they can on the outside seem very busy, but actually they can be very, very lonely because they don't have somebody to talk to about these feelings and what's going on. And what would you advise in that situation? The quality of our relationships predicts the quality of our lives. 
and that's all our relationships. We are wired to connect and be in relationship. If people are feeling lonely, it's because either the quality of the relationships they have, that they're not honest enough and open enough. In good relationships and friendships, like I'm sure you two, you reciprocally tell each other what you're hating or what is mm-hmm. difficult. Or I told her yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> she Just too stop. much detail, man. <laughs> <laughs> TMI. But as you do that, you get a... a you know, if you have a picture of a window, it's a broader window of someone and you can see all aspects of them. And then that frees you to show all the aspects of yourself. And then you feel free and more confident to be yourself. And that does liberate you to have more joy and as you do to just then laugh in the relationship and tease each other, but also trust each other, which is key in relationships. So my kind of voice with people who are feeling very lonely is to recognize that they need to prioritize their relationships and dare to be vulnerable to kind of show themselves. And if they don't have good quality people in their life to use what we now call social prescriptions, like join clubs, painting clubs, gardening clubs, walking clubs, whatever your interest is, find your tribe, but you will carry on being lonely if you don't shift what you do. So what you're saying really is it all starts with who, doesn't it? Who are you? Who do you know? That's the place you begin mentally, isn't it? Yes, completely. So know yourself. So have the capacity to look inwards and name what's going on inside you. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling scared. I love gardening. I love going for walks and kind of get the information for yourself and then use that. And you can do that through journaling, through walking and talking to a friend, through seeing a therapist. Use that information to inform you and embrace it as you go into this next phase of your life. So this makes me think then when GPs mistakenly prescribe antidepressants, some people may need them. And I absolutely understand that mental illness requires that as a prescription. But you could be just hiding everything. You know, it's a bigger scandal than not just prescribing the right HRT for women. Prescribing antidepressants for some women, that's just stopping them changing their lives for the better. It's putting them in limbo land. It's putting them absolutely frozen and stuck Mm. in the misery they went to their GP with and ensures they remain in that misery. I completely agree with you. There are people that require medical prescriptions for depression. But for people who want to inform themselves during their midlife, they need to explore what all the options are, not just the prescription. You know, the the GP has seven minutes, eight minutes. I know. How can they possibly begin to know what's going on? And they wouldn't have a clue that your husband is drinking or that your child is having an eating disorder. Or your hormones are all over the place. (laughs) But all of that will affect your hormones being all over the place. So what's already difficult is accelerated. And you look at your body and you've got sagging boots and you think, who the hell am I? (laughs) And I don't even like it. We need to get on the couch with you now, Julia. Okay, lucky thing. (laughs) People maybe who haven't had therapy or aren't familiar with it, they'll have got a sense from this initial chat. What is therapy and why does it work? My job as a therapist is to create the relationship that meets your needs so that you come with... A difficulty. It may be that someone has died. It may be that you've lost your job. It may be that you haven't got a relationship. It may be that all of those things and you're in your, your mid-50s. So my first job is to kind of assess 
what it is and you to tell me what is going on. The big thing that will predict our outcome isn't the model of therapist I am, but the level of trust between us. Mm -hmm. So if someone listening to this is looking for a therapist, what they need to kind of, well, first of all, that they're accredited. So they're not someone who's done a 10 day course and gives themselves a credit, but also do I feel like this person has got me? Do I feel like I can tell this person anything? And you wouldn't feel that in the first session, but over a number of sessions, I mean, or if something really drives you mad, you can't stand their voice, or they look like your mother who you hated. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the things yeah. that you should find somebody else because they're too big a barrier to overcome to build a really trusting relationship. Do you have to have it weekly? I think it's different for different people. So I tend to see people weekly or every two weeks. I think weekly means that you you have a, an issue that you're dealing with and it's still warm when you go to the next session. So if you're suffering quite a lot, I see you weekly. If it's just something that you want to work on that isn't kind of invading your day every day, then it can be every two weeks. It might be just incredibly useful to even have four sessions three or four sessions, you will find out what is underneath the bonnet. And then you can decide whether you need to do more or whether you're fine. But it will give you confidence about both. Have you had therapy? We both have. Yeah, Uh, I had it oddly very very many years ago probably about three or four years after I first came to London I've written about it in that book actually I haven't talked about it before but it, it was a way of resetting me because I'd left home so early and I'd come and done this big job and I just felt a little bit lost and I thought probably scientifically what I need here is someone to help me sort of find the path and Trish you've had it haven't you? Yes no I had it Julia in my 40s when I was probably going through perimenopause but didn't realise it and was feeling this sense of overwhelm, anger, irrational, brain fog, couldn't think straight and just loss of control over over my life really And it was wonderful. I actually did it for about two years. You know, I cried a lot. (laughs) Lots of stuff comes out that you don't know is going to come out. Yeah, it was really incredibly helpful in in my life. And then going on to HRT after that, you know, I'm now back to my nice, calm, happy person, which is wonderful. I mean, relative (laughs) Trish, isn't it? (laughs) I think what we're looking for in life is the emotional flexibility to kind of feel our joy and know our pain and express it. But we have a sense of agency and stability in our lives. I do think it's quite brave, though, because I have friends I'll talk to and say, perhaps you should talk to someone. And, and, you know, people will say, well, I don't want to talk about that again. Because the first session, you're not going to be expecting someone to come and say, this happened in my child. It was incredibly traumatic. I just think when you're a woman in midlife and you're going through all of this, the thought of having to rehash the horrors is quite hard, isn't it? I really think if women can afford it, it's incredibly beneficial. They can get it from voluntary organisations too. I think you're right. The fear of facing ourselves can be very overwhelming. But actually, the cost of not facing ourselves is much greater because we get stuck. When we are able to examine our lives and ourselves and express them, we then do adapt and thrive. I think in the sort of field of mental health, we're always on a spectrum. We kind of move depending on what's happening to us of kind of really feeling bonkers to feeling really stable and happy. But there is a great deal of awareness of mental health and there's many more people talking about it. I think the difficulty is exactly what you said, is that there is a barrier to actually accessing it. But what we also know is the longer you wait to do it, 
the worse your outcome. So the earlier the intervention, you have more resilience and robustness to get on with what you're facing. We have some questions. Have you got a couch, Julia? Do you have, do people lie down? Is it like Frasier? I wish they have a chair. I mean, last 18 months they've sat up in in their bedrooms and their kitchens and their sitting rooms and someone talked to me in a loo. (laughs) Any place she could get with any privacy from all her children homeschooling. Oh my goodness. That's probably quite a good one to start on then because we've got Julianne who is desperate to set some limits. She's in her 50s. She's desperate to set some limits on the domestic front because she says her family walk all over her. Her broader family too. She's got a brother who's an alcoholic who she's tried to help but just can't. She's tired all the time. And I think we'd just really like you to help her feel more hopeful about life and be able to set some boundaries. I mean, the fact that she's aware that she's not setting boundaries is a really good Mm -hmm. first step because her not setting boundaries is co-created. It's not just them walking all over her. It's her allowing them to walk all over her. She needs to give herself permission to have a no. And part of that is recognising that what she feels about herself and her needs matter as much as everyone around her. And I think a way to help her recognise the importance of that is that what she role models to her family is what they will take into their lives. So if she wants her children to learn to be able to say no, to have boundaries and space between them and us, then she needs to practice it. So there are a couple of things that really help with a no. One is that when somebody asks you to do something, rather than immediately replying, Give yourself a few minutes and say, listen, let me just come back to you. And that's good in emails too, or voice messages or texts. Like go away and think about it. What do I really want? And in your no, not having to justify, not having to explain, just have a very clear no. No, I can't do that right now. But the other thing is recognizing that if you don't have a good no, what is your yes worth? So if you're constantly saying yes, it, it you become this dish rag that you don't want to be. So when you say no, it values yourself and you get more valued. Very I, useful. I so like we've that. also got Lily in her 40s. She's recently divorced and she thinks she might be falling in love with a female friend she has made. And she asks, am I a lesbian? I think labels are very unhelpful. She's much more likely to be falling in love with a person, the qualities, the interests, the connection that they have. And I think our sort of idea of black and white sexual identity is changing. It's much more fluid. We had a lot of bias that we shouldn't have fluidity in our sexual identity. As a generation. As a generation. I mean, the younger generation are much more likely to be non-binary. They're much more likely and to be gay and to come out. So I think we had a lot of shame about that was transferred generationally. And so recognising that she loves this person as a person and then whatever that means sexually for her is what matters. Creating a new relationship with someone from the same gender as you, my, my inclination would be to say, just go slowly, go step by step, find out who you are together. I think one of the big tests in new relationships is, What am I like in this relationship? Am I a version of myself that I like? Or do I become someone who I don't really like that much? I feel I have to perform or I feel I have to be funny. And then for long-term relationships, there's 10 questions by someone called Professor Anne Barlow. 
And the overarching question, I won't go into the detail, is are we a good fit? Do we have the same values? Do we like the same things? Are we good at sorting out arguments? And so if the relationship goes into the next phase, say they're dating or in relationship, then you kind of need to ask those questions. Next up, we have one about control. We've sort of touched a little bit on this for midlife women, the idea of you've got to be on top of everything. You've got to know what you're doing because if you let any of the balls drop, let any of it go, we fear what might happen. But we do have to start letting go at this age, don't we? Because of the big and small things, whether it's you know sending our children out into the world, emptiness, that kind of thing. How do we let go? The theory that I like best for this is something called the paradoxical theory of change, which is the more I accept the aspects of myself and life that I find unacceptable, the more likely it is that change can occur. Mm. So rather than trying to wrestle and nail down control, to recognize that I don't like the feelings of being out of control, but I let them come through my body. And as I kind of let them come through, that also releases me to feel hope from the change that there's possibility from the change. And, you know, where certainty ends, hope begins. And you always have possibility and uncertainty as two bedfellows that go side by side. So when you try and have control, you often actually lose some of the great richness of life. Are you listening, Trish? I'm nodding. (laughs) (laughs) Not that that question was from me or anything. (laughs) Talk to me, Trish. (laughs) Yes, I am known as the control freak in our house. But it's but that's detail, why. isn't it? You're, it's you're yeah, exactly. Person. Trying to keep it all together. I'm not saying give up on all this version of yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm saying embrace and enjoy the things that give you a sense of agency and control in your day. Mm-hmm. That you can decide I'm going to do five tasks this morning and that you know for you that you're going to get them done is a really good positive thing. It's recognising the different domains of control. That matters. So when you're kind of wanting to control who your son goes out with or what they're going to do with their lives, recognizing that is a domain that you can influence and you want to support him in his life choices. But fundamentally, you have no control. You know, people who have agency and intention through their day are much more productive and have a lot of well-being. So it is extremely useful. Mm -hmm. It's just not trying to put that lens into every aspect of your life and on to other people yeah your children now this is one i think that will resonate with a lot so hannah's regained her libido after going on hrt because it does give you to you know the mix of hormones gives you that back (laughs) (laughs) now she is a bit intrigued and you talk about this in the book with your idea of relationship maintenance she's in a long-term relationship she's been married for over 25 years she's she's happy but there's she doesn't have much sex so this project as she calls it to start her sex life again their sex life again how does she do that can't just jump in how do you begin relationship maintenance and get swinging off the chandeliers after watching Bridgerton again okay the fact that she wants it she's more likely to make it happen and that if you don't use it you lose it so you have less sexual desire the less you have sex And the thing that happens in the complacency of relationships is that we want safety and security in the relationship with this person that we're married to or committed to. But often that safety and commitment is a deadener to desire. Sunday morning sex, I know I can have Sunday morning sex 
doesn't thrill you no. because it's like, oh, there he is in his pajamas. I'm going to be yeah. washing those pajamas, or whatever you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. So there's recognizing that that you need to create aspects in your relationship that give you erotic energy. And that isn't like to do with sort of intercourse. It's to do with things that fill your mind and ignite your imagination so that you may watch something together that it kind of takes you into a different place. You may start doing something together that feels exciting and different, but also that you can't get hot from cold, that you need little warm steps. So start having bids of affection, giving each other closer hugs, being more attentive to each other. Because when your partner, whether it's the male or the female, feels that your attention is drawn to them and that you desire them, they are much more likely to be reciprocal in their desire for you. And you see a lot of couples on the sort of relationship maintenance. So is that two or three times a year, four times a year? How often would you recommend that? I see these couples about two or three times a year. So I see them for an assessment at the beginning, three or four sessions. And it started with this young man whose parents got divorced after 35-year marriage. And he felt that they'd had a really good marriage and then it started going wrong and they didn't deal with it until it was too late. And that is very common that you just keep putting it under that rug and thinking it'll go away. And then that rug in the end just becomes this huge pile of poo and there's nothing but the poo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very hard to deal with. Your shovel can't get it out of the way. So he was the one that I started it with. And with them, we looked at, there were lots of resentments even before they got married about she was the one that earned more because he was starting his own business. And she was pissed off about that. And he had no idea. And so the things that go unsaid can create this kind of resentment that goes underground and then comes up and multiplies. Mm-hmm. So I see them two or three times a year at all big life stages, like when they had children, right. when they moved house, when they changed job, mm-hmm. and we deal with it and it keeps them kind of going. And if relationships are the basis of all good mental health, then mm. sort it out, I guess. Yeah. They really matter. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, thank you. Can you maybe one final piece, one thought you would like to leave our midlife listeners with? That hope is the alchemy that turns a life around, but it takes work to create the picture of your future for yourself that you can hope for and be realistic in that hope. But that we we need to prioritise ourselves to do that, to create the energy, to create the plans. And then that does give us the confidence to dare to do these different things in this next phase of our life. I'm 61 and I'm having more fun and more interest and more engagement than I ever did in my 40s. That's Um, so good to know, isn't it? Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing all your knowledge for free, which is brilliant (laughs) for all our listeners. (laughs) It's a real pleasure. Lovely being with you. Do you feel like you're stuck in a fashion rut now that you've hit midlife? Now, this is a question we often tackle on our private Facebook group. And indeed, many women I know ask me about this too. So in How to Win Midlife Today, we're going to be getting you out of that fashion rut and back on the runway of life. Between us, Trish and I have sat through thousands of fashion shows. We've commissioned hundreds of best buys on the high street fashion shoots and shopped enough for all our listeners. So we do know our stuff. We've also drafted in an expert to help you get out of your style rut and to revamp and spring clean 
in your wardrobe, but where to start? I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? Trish, I'm stood in your bedroom in front of mm. your fabulous wardrobe that goes on for 10,000 miles. <laughs> I open it and I say, Trish, you're in a wardrobe, but what do you do first there? How do you get oh, out of that? Yeah, it's about getting everything organised, isn't it? It's, yeah. take, it's, it's that sort of taking everything out. But I just, for me, I, I'm very good at recycling and I shove things away up in a cupboard and then I get them out again. But I think at the moment for me, it's about clothes that look good that are sort of smart casual because I'm not going into the office anymore I'm not working I'm not going to big events so I want to look somebody please make me look really smart and fabulous in like yeah. jeans jumpers blouse it's that you kind do. of thing you do I think a revamp is actually quite a big task and I think mm. it's a mindset change as well as a practical change and I really wouldn't underestimate how much time you need to apply to that because um, I think it's seven days of mulling over Ooh. what you've done I mean I do take it quite seriously I've worked in fashion at 9,000 years um, I think you have to start with your body shape mm. because it really does change in midlife and a lot of your wardrobe won't be fitting the body shape you are now it will have been bought or you'll be in a pattern of buying the things that fit the body shape that you were so what I do is I get everything out on the bed and I ask some hard questions of all the pieces so when did I last wear it does it actually fit and sit properly is it the right shape for me now because I have to change shape um do I have more than one version of it I mean I've got so many black jackets it's absolutely yeah. ridiculous so you have to do a sort of mental mm. audit of them and then I put the rejects in a suitcase I wait a few days sometimes up to a week while I'm doing a bit of research on mm. other things I might like and things I might want to wear in a different way that I've already got and then I go through it all again and mm. then I, the stuff I then put in a wardrobe I take pictures of just so mm. I've got a mental note of what I've got so I don't go out and about buying other stuff that won't fit when the seasons um, change now I did talk to fabulous Instagrammer Coral Manson she's stripy Coral on Instagram she's 49 she's worked in fashion retail for brands like Hobbs LK Bennett and Karen Millen for 20 years so she's worked on the shop floor and she's trained stylists as well on how to help shoppers and she also works in a pre-loved boutique now so she's kind of got the, the wheel of all of it um, her Instagram feed is full of tips and brands um, so you might want to have a look at that but she says start with your underwear we've said this before but it is worth repeating get rid of the stuff you don't wear you only need five bras make sure they fit properly and that you have matching underwear <laughs> to go with them she really likes that MS t-shirt bra which we've talked about the uh, underwire one which goes fits for all shapes so once you've got the bra I like a brand called Hanes actually which um, is an American brand once you've got the bra and the pants they then you can start building your outfits. The other thing that we all do, I think, in midlife is we think, oh, I must change. And we buy something on impulse. Mm. <laughs> and actually, you, I, I get the impulse buys, as I call them, out and just put them in a pile and just think, have I actually worn these? Do, mm. Am I going to wear them? And do they go with anything that I've got? And also, I think when you buy things, if you're going to buy high-end stuff like coats, you should always spend mm. a bit on, I think. Knitwear, you should always spend a bit on. Then you can buy that pre-loved, I think. I've just bought a jumper in Shelter for 50 quid from Ralph Lauren, which is, looks like it's new it's worth an awful lot more than that but it's mm. just a beige jumper which I think I'll wear yeah. forever now Coral says the main change in shape for her and I think it's probably right for us Trish as well as jeans yeah 
Oh, God. She wasn't. Yes. She's a size 10, but she said she's not the same shape that she was. So <laughs> she's been wearing, instead, I mean, the skinny jean has died a death for any, yes. any woman and especially midlife women. But she says she's been wearing a brand called White Stuff, which is actually a young person's brand, I like to call it. Um, and it's it's quite high, but it's much wider on the thigh and she crops mm. it. She either has them cropped or she rolls them up. But she says it just it fits her thighs better now than anything slightly tighter. Um, you found a pair of jeans you like, haven't you? Oh, well, yes, I have. I found two brands and it's been a bit of a revelation. I think in addition to, you know, the kind of the tips that you and Coral have given, like the biggest thing that I've done recently in terms of changing my style, as well as reassessing what I've got, is going to a boutique. I went to a local boutique, which has really nice brands. It's called Iris. It's in Northcote Road in Clapham. I just kind of went in there and I don't normally like, I don't, I'm one of these, I go shopping on my own. I don't like going with anybody and, and looking at stuff but I found this this really amazing woman in there who I think she runs the store and she was just brilliant because she just whipped all these things out popped me in the changing room said try this try that and I just felt really confident in her hands (laughs) you know like I was trying things I would never try on before and I didn't feel that kind of pressure that I had to buy a load of stuff but she found me these jeans and I was literally like she she popped them up and I was like oh my god they're brilliant they're called um DL 1961 you've probably heard of them Lorraine they're yeah. that really sustainable apparently they're the most sustainable jeans on the planet but what I love about them is that the waistband sits really well they've it's almost like they've had these extra seams put in around the waistband and the waistband so you know when the jeans get a bit loose around your bum and your thighs before yeah. you wash them which drives me mad well the waistband doesn't because I can't bear that whole waistband falling down things so that's been really Ooh. good and then another brand called Ryko r-e-i-k-o with a very similar kind of fit and that's a French brand from Marseille and it's very chic and they're about kind of 100 120 so probably you know quite high cost for jeans but I'd say worth every penny well sure. I, I probably would spend more than that on jeans would you because yeah. I like a frame or a J brand but if you're going to buy jeans buy pre-loved jeans because eBay is just there if once you've worked out what size you are and in you a particular find the brand, right style yeah yes yes yeah because every pair of jeans is labeled into a specific style isn't it so you Mm. just find it and search it that's what i mean about spending a bit of time on doing this h&m actually does have some good jeans as well at the lower price point i think and also they've got some really great white t-shirts because you do need a couple of those i think in your revamp Mm. to go with everything coral stripy coral as we call her she's really good with color so mm-hmm. wearing colour is something I think a lot of women are frightened of. And I would always say, and Coral will agree as well, I think, just try not to do block colour, bright colour. Try and, and do it in patterns um, mm. as you make your journey down the, the colour route. But I think um, there's something also called the Shape Calculator on who, oh. what, where, which oh. is a, a web, brilliant website full yeah. of inspiration. And it, you put in all your details and it will calculate your shape and then it will try and match jeans and things to the shape that you've got. And it's very current and it's very up to date. So it's worth checking that mm-hmm. out. And the other way of revamping your style is changing your jewellery with the way you wear jewellery as well I think we get stuck in a rut with jewellery don't we we always I mean Mm. I always wear really tiny small pieces actually now I'm starting to wear bigger more flamboyant pieces Mm -hmm. and always having great nails I think that makes a real difference getting properly I am sitting here biting my nails as you're saying that so don't look at mine Mm. and lipstick I mean I discovered Mm. lipstick late in life when I was about 40 so I think it's really is about getting rid of all those preconceptions of how you shop and what you shop because your shape has changed and it will change for everybody. Mm. So you're a different woman. 
so have a different mindset around your shopping. Um, there is, if you want to get pre-loved, and you and I are big fans of this because your our kids shop on Vinted and Depop yeah. and all of those. There is something on Instagram called a virtual vintage market, and that's an account that edits all the pre-loved brands that you can buy from online. So it's really useful. Anything well, else you want to add? My well, dear, I was just question? going to say about the pre-loved because I think it is definitely mm. the way for the rentals, which we've talked about. Yeah, you know, my wardrobe HQ. But with pre-loved, I think you do just need to be a little bit careful because you can't return it so you have it's to a be treasure hunt in a way isn't yeah it? so it is about the research and getting yeah. you know knowing the items that you want but then if it's not right for you you can sell it again and yeah. it will be pre-loved by somebody else kind of thing. i will be wearing Got your it. pre-loved glittery <laughs> leotards that you like to wear every <laughs> yes exactly doesn't wear them. it's not true and here we are at my favorite bit of the show it's nostalgia noodling and you won't get this on woman's hour listeners this is high quality podcasting trish what have you been nostalgia noodling i've been back to the 80s um yep. so this is we're talking 19 20 year old me here maybe 19 and i'm in the hairdressers i'm in a cheap hairdressers in brighton i'm at brighton poly um, and i'm i'm having 13 pounds worth of highlights done <laughs> How are they doing that to you, Trish? Well, it's it's not great, I, ha- I have to say. I think no. it's probably the first time I had highlights done. And they used, um, it was like a rubber cap back in oh. <laughs> Imagine a bit of bath mat moulded into yes. a cap with holes in it. And they stuck this thing on your head and then got what I can only think of as like a crochet hook and pulled out the, the hairs oh, uh, and then so covered it all in women. bleach. It was awful because foils, apparently, they didn't start using them until the 90s. So and and, and and they would have been really expensive anyway. Obviously, only had thirteen pounds from the student loan to spend on it. But the girl was kind of really vigorous, and I sat there not saying anything. And when I came out, oh, I had scratches so like you. all over my forehead where this bloody cook and she'd scraped it all through so I had this awful cheap highlights and a scraped forehead it wasn't good Thank would God you say forehead. something now because I would immediately I would. have said stop oh it God. hurts I literally now I say everything to everybody good. in the street everywhere but back then <laughs> wasn't happening anyway that that's my little painful return to the 80s what about you Where well you so how old do you think Homer Simpson is this year oh, in God. real life in real life he's got to be at least 35 Fine? No, so he he has allegedly turned sixty. Oh, you mean um, in the show? Yes, in oh, the sorry, show. I so I was in, thinking, yeah. good God, imagine if Homer Simpson was sixty-five. Sixty-five, that's his turn now, because apparently he's born in May the twelfth, nineteen fifty-six. Oh. Um, and then I was thinking, oh gosh, Homer Simpson. When did I used to watch The Simpsons? Well, I mostly mm. watched The Simpsons when I came back from nightclubbing. Oh, <gasps> very early in the morning. I think a calming down thing. Probably watched it on video because you wouldn't have been mm. able to record um, anything. And that took me down a, a bit of a 90s nostalgia mm. route. And I was trying to remember all of the names of that. This is a pop quiz for you, Trish. The nightclubs in Soho that we may have gone to oh. in the 90s. <laughs> I started with Heaven, obviously, because yeah. that was fab. Ministry of Sound, not in yeah. Soho, but yeah. Ronnie Scott's, did you mm. go there? didn't a bit jazzy can't remember whether it's jazzy mm, or not but the jazzy. big one that i used to go to the mm. wag club the do you wag. remember that yeah i definitely went to the wag used to go and see bands there go to clubs there it was brilliant do was you think brilliant we may have i had a boyfriend in a band that used to perform at the wag club do you think we may have ever been in the audience at the same time i think it's very likely i think that could have happened were you in the mosh pit no i no 
No. <laughs> Not in the but wash Would pit. I? Can you imagine? I'd have come up to you and I'd have said, Trish, in 10,000 yeah. years' time, yeah. you'll be able to look out of a window and recognise a swift. <laughs> would that have impressed you then? No. I don't think so. I think I would have been sort of hoping that Morrissey would wander in and I could have a chat with him, but it wasn't happening back in those days. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please tell all your friends and all the midlife women you know. And remember to subscribe on your podcast provider. And we would love a review if that's possible, a rate and a review. And if you could download your episodes, they will count on our listener numbers. And that will be very, very helpful too. And don't forget to join us, our Facebook group on Instagram, or email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.